G'day, and welcome back to the Australian Histories podcast. This is episode 10, where we'll continue the rest of the story about the Kellys in the police camp at Stringybark Creek. Last time in episode 9, we talked about the police parties coming into the ranges to try and capture or kill the Kellys. When one police group inadvertently made camp quite close to the Kellys' Bullet Creek hut, Ned and the boys decided to bail them up and take their guns and supplies before leaving the area. But three of the four police officers were killed in that confrontation. Constable McIntyre escaped and he made a gruelling trip back to Mansfield to raise the alarm. So we'll take up the story again at this point and we'll see how this devastating action shocked and terrified the public and it led to the formation and outlawing of the Cali Gang. As is usual, there are a few images and links to the references that I've used for this episode on the Australian Histories podcast website at www.australianhistoriespodcast.com.au And you can also find a tab there for contact. For anyone who's just discovered these podcasts, this Kelly saga starts in-depth back at episode 3, Beverage. If you'd like to hear about what led up to today's episode, you might like to go back there and listen to those first. But for those of us already up to speed, let's continue on now with episode 10, Stringybark Creek, part 2. So, just to clarify again, we covered the details surrounding the discovery of the police camp by the Kellys, and of the shootings that took place when they decided to bail up the police, last time in episode 9. Three of the officers were killed in the resulting shootout, and as discussed, the fourth, Thomas McIntyre, managed to ride off during the shooting and make his escape. After a gruelling nearly 24 hours, making his way through the dense bush towards Mansfield, he finally found help from a local farmer, and he was taken into town to Police Inspector Putris to report on the ambush at Stringybark Creek. Now, more than 20 years later, in 1902, that surviving police officer, Thomas McIntyre, recorded his full recollections of the Stringybark Creek confrontation in a memoir designed to, in his view, set the record straight. With so much time having passed, a great many other books plays, reports and interpretations were already in the public domain regarding the Kellys, and surprisingly, many of the rather pro and anti-Kelly takes on the story were quite harsh in their assessments of McIntyre's behaviour. Castles noted, quote, He acted courageously and showed great physical and mental endurance throughout his gruelling ordeal, and yet public perception of him remained decidedly negative. Word of him spending time in a wombat hole led to persistent insinuations of cowardice, which greatly disturbed the proud Irishman. Unquote. So I think he really wanted to ensure that his account was set down clearly and explained in its entirety. In fact, he states in the document this, quote, setting the record straight, unquote, particularly for his own family, is the motivation for the written record. He comments in the memoir. I, having been the principal witness, an eyewitness of the murders, am often asked to recount the particulars of that unhappy time, unquote. 
Though he described having to recount the matter over and over again in the intervening years as exceedingly distasteful, he acknowledges, quote, it is evidently a subject from which I will never escape, unquote. He reports suffering many humiliating and vexatious remarks and thought he should leave a thorough and true record, for his family at least, albeit 24 years after the event. The unpublished document is held uh, by the Victoria Police Museum, and they have made an electronic copy accessible, called, quote, A True Narrative of the Kelly Gang by T.N. McIntyre, sole survivor of the police party murderously attacked by those bushrangers in the Wombats Forest on the 26th of October 1878, Unquote. And that's dated 1902. They really delighted in those long, long titles in the day, didn't they? Uh, I have provided a link for those interested to that document from my webpage at the Australian Histories Podcast.com.au. So, after McIntyre's marathon effort to get back to Mansfield, on arrival they headed straight to Inspector Putris's private residence to raise the alarm. And just to recap again, McIntyre wrote, quote, When that gentleman came to the door and saw the state I was in, he said, Good God, McIntyre, what has happened? They are all killed, sir, I said, every one shot by the Kellys but myself. Putris immediately set about making arrangements to proceed to the scene of the tragedy, and I, going to the station, wrote a report of the affair, unquote. The exhausted McIntyre immediately wrote a brief account of events as an official report, including once again recording, quote, Constable Lonigan had made a motion to draw his revolver, which he was carrying. Immediately he did so, he was shot by Edward Kelly and I believe died at once, unquote. Later, Dr Samuel Reynolds was to confirm that the constable had died as a result of a single bullet entering his brain after it passed through his right eye but he also found other wounds which he felt were inflicted before the fatal wound a thigh injury shot while upright and in his opinion probably running for cover so that might contradict some of the other recollections noted by McIntyre though of course in the chaos he would not have seen everything that went on perhaps it's hard to say how reliable the forensics were at that time too perhaps could the doctor have known if the thigh wound was pre or marginally post-mortem? We can only go with the opinion he gave under oath, and this indicates Lonigan was being shot at while ducking for cover behind the tree trunk. Whether or not he was drawing his revolver at that time, we cannot know for certain. All we can be certain of is that McIntyre immediately threw up his hands in surrender and he survived, while Lonigan, running and possibly reaching for his weapon, did not. Whether he was actively drawing his weapon is of major importance, though, in the question of murder versus self-defence in the future, so it became quite the point of contention in the months and years to come. McIntyre said both Kennedy and Scanlon reached for their firearms after being called upon to bail up. Scanlon was reaching up to recover the rifle over his back and was probably hit with his arm raised, likely the fatal shot, again confirmed by Dr Reynolds, though other injuries were noted too. The Kellys had initially only very meagre old weapons themselves, but of course gained access to the police revolvers and rifles once they had bailed up McIntyre and Lonigan. It's hard to know how one might react under these frightful circumstances. 
surrender or try to fight it out? I guess if you do not trust your foe to respect your surrender, then perhaps you feel your life better protected by trying to use your own weapons to disable your assailant. It's an awful outcome, the shock and fear probably making a total shootout inevitable in the circumstances. Again, how many must have wished afterwards that the Kellys had just slipped away out of the ranges on that day instead? Now, I'll read from McIntyre's police report, as reproduced in his memoir in full, which he claims to be the verbatim copy of the original report made at Mansfield Police Station that day, and I note it still includes the original error recorded about the creek name, because later some details included here were slightly changed in future written reports and in the evidence presented in court. Also of interest is his first comment to Putris that, quote, they are all killed, sir, unquote, when he is generally pretty keen to be cautious and correct about his comments. Of course, he could not have known if Kennedy was dead or alive at that time, or actually Scanlon for that matter, seeing as he didn't inspect him on the ground. But shooting was still going on as McIntyre left the scene, so his report to Putris was not entirely correct, Kennedy at least was still alive at the time McIntyre rode away on his bolting horse. But I guess with the shock of it all and the assumptions he would have made during that harrowing and terrifying walk back, we must forgive him this error. So here is McIntyre's report made at the Mansfield Police Station on his return. Northeastern District, Mansfield Police Station, 27th October 1878. Report of Constable McIntyre, 2384, re-attack made on the police by the Kelly brothers and two others at Stringer's Creek, 20 miles from Mansfield. I beg to state that I formed one of a party which went into pursuit of Edward and Daniel Kelly on the 25th inst. The other members of the party were Sergeant Kennedy, Constable Scanlon and Lonigan. Yesterday afternoon, 26th inst, about 5pm, I, being cook for the day, was in the act of making some tea, Constable Lonigan standing beside me. Suddenly, and without us being aware of their approach, four men with rifles presented at us, called upon us to bail up, hold up your hands. I, being unarmed at the time, did so. Constable Lonigan made a motion to draw his revolver, which he was carrying. Immediately he did so. He was shot by Edward Kelly, and I believe died at once. They then placed a man in charge of me, Edward Kelly, with two loaded rifles, and lay in wait for the approach of the two men, Sergeant Kennedy and Constable Scanlon, who were out on patrol. About half an hour afterwards they approached. Ned Kelly told me if they laid down their arms and surrendered they would be allowed to depart next morning. If they did not, we would all be shot. Kelly, with presented rifle at me, ordered me to get them to surrender. I approached them for that purpose, but before I could speak, they were ordered to bail up and hold up your hands. The two men immediately grasped their firearms. Constable Scanlon was carrying the breech-loading rifle, but before they could use them, Constable Scanlon received a ball under the right arm, which I feel assured has caused his death. Sergeant Kennedy I am unable to say anything about. He was advised by me to surrender. He said it was all right, I will, but as the desperados continued shooting, 
at the sergeant and me, I seized his horse, which he had abandoned, and made my escape on it. I was fired at repeatedly, and I believe the horse must have been wounded, as he knocked up after two or three miles. I concealed myself in a wombat hole until it became dark and I travelled all night, and until 4pm today when I reached Mansfield. I approached Mr. Tolmy's station about 12 o'clock noon, but I was under the impression two of the horses hobbled near the homestead were police horses, which had been used by us, and I came to the conclusion that the station was stuck up by those desperados, and did not approach as I was unarmed and completely prostrated from travelling. As there has been no report of this matter, I would not be positive of it. Two of the murderers were Edward Kelly and Daniel Kelly, and the other two young men, about the same age, of each respectively. T. McIntyre, MC, 2384. Underneath he writes, The above is a verbatim copy of my report. It will be noted that I made a mistake in the name of the creek. It should have been Stringy Bark Creek. I had no time to prepare a report, nor enter into the details. Mr. Putris was waiting for it, and the excitement of the moment and the commotion upon the station, many citizens had gathered in the room where I was to make inquiries, were enough to distract any man without having such a serious matter to report upon. So, there's a great deal more in that memoir by McIntyre. It's very, very interesting. So he had made an error in the name of the creek, but in general, we must assume it's a pretty good witness account of his recollections, as up to that point, he had had little time to discuss the details with any senior officers and modify his thoughts in any way. At Mansfield, for some reason, they couldn't get the telegraph operating. So Constable Meehan was sent to Benalla instead, to advise of the fatal encounter and to take McIntyre's report to Sadlier there. With the Mansfield police weapons gone, already supplied to Kennedy's ill-fated prospecting party, no weapons were left at the station for Constable Meehan to take with him for protection, so he travelled unarmed, and he was clearly highly fearful of the gang's appearance. McIntyre's suspicion that the gang were on this side of the range, and may have already bailed up another farm in the area, would no doubt have made everyone nervous until they could investigate that. So, when on his way to Benella, Meehan noticed a couple of suspicious men further up the road. He panicked, dismounted, turned his horse loose, and, like McIntyre, also discarded his boots in an effort to become invisible to any tracking. This anxiety about the tracking is fascinating. The expert skills of many Aboriginal trackers were well known, and indeed used by police all over the country. But the discarding of boots being able to disguise one's tracks must have been some kind of weird common folklore in the area. Surely not part of their police training, one assumes. It's a really curious response. It's interesting also that the police must have thought Kelly had these tracking skills. His mythology was already starting to build, it seems. We think Kelly did have contact with local Indigenous people, particularly in Avenal, at least, when he was younger, and he was known to respect and even fear their tracking and other bush navigation skills. But I do not think there's evidence that he actually had those skills to any extent himself. He certainly had other bushcraft and navigating skills, though, and a certain cunning in discreet and stealthy movement, in his local environment at least. In McIntyre's memoir, 
Though firm in the belief that Kelly was a cold-blooded killer, he also reflected that, quote, Kelly was astute enough to make a Boer War general, unquote. So there's a certain amount of regard for Kelly there, even at that time. By the time the barefoot and quaking Mian reached Benalla, the telegraph had long been working again, and the alarm had already been telegraphed around the country, along with a report now of Mian's own disappearance. The Kelly gang had already gained a 30-hour head start on their pursuers, though they wouldn't have known that, and of course the rising rivers meant, in the end, they couldn't take advantage of it. Meanwhile, by 5.30pm, Putris, currently in charge of the Mansfield area, had gathered police and volunteers who were prepared to head back to Stringybark Creek and recover the bodies. This party included Dr Reynolds and several other locals, having rounded up some weapons from the townspeople, just in case. McIntyre, having recorded his first statement while all that was going on, also volunteered to return immediately with the search party, but he was so exhausted he apparently had to be lifted onto his horse. He also recorded that he'd been unable to hold any food down, possibly due to the effects of drinking water straight from the creeks he crossed in his trek back, or probably more likely simply due to nervous exhaustion and that body-jarring fall. But either way, he must seriously have been in bad shape, and I think we must give him credit for being so dedicated. By now, the same appalling weather that had hindered the escaping Kellys was also slowing the volunteers. But McIntyre also noted that in his state, he was unable to bear the motion of the horse beyond a walk anyway, so they plodded back into the mountains at a slow but steady pace. McIntyre was needed to assist in identifying the site in relation to the shootings, but he was no help on making his way through the bush to the old prospecting area, as they had gone in via another route. He didn't know the area himself all that well. So, collecting another local volunteer on the way, he was able to guide them to the old prospector's site in the Stringybark Creek area. The recovery party was now travelling in the dark, and progress slowed further. But when they were about a mile from the site, they halted and considered their options. There was a thought that if the Kellys believed they had shot McIntyre, that they may not have actually left the camp, thinking themselves undiscovered, so greater caution was suggested. The main group stopped to wait for daybreak. A smaller group went ahead and found the area deserted. So they began scouting about, founding the remnants of the burnt tent, and then finding the bodies of Scanlon and Lonergan. They looked for Kennedy, but with no success. By then it was after midnight, raining, and they deemed it inadvisable to light a fire, in case this should advertise their presence, should any of the Kellys still actually be about. So they hunkered down for an uncomfortable night in the open, to wait for the remaining volunteers to join them at dawn and resume the search. During the morning they made a systematic search of the immediate area, but still not finding Kennedy, it was decided to return to Mansfield with the bodies of Scanlon and Lonigan and to arrange for a better equipped search party to return and try again to locate Kennedy. There was some conjecture that the Kellys may have taken Kennedy as some kind of hostage, but what they really needed was some better information about the Kellys' movements. So they did turn back to Mansfield to see what news had been coming in, arriving there about 1pm. 
The story by this time was all over the press and further police reinforcements had arrived, along with all sorts of important people who'd made their way to Mansfield now. Chief Commissioner Standish had reported the news to Victorian Premier Berry, and it's worth noting again that Standish admitted to Berry at that time that the Stringybuck Creek police were called upon to surrender, but that Lonigan had reached for his revolver and had been shot. This is an important point to remember when we come to the episodes related to Ned's court case. Standish also asked for a reward of £200 to be offered for each of the four gang members, £800 in all, including the two men, names unknown. This reward amount was to continue to escalate over the coming weeks and months. Standish then sent Superintendent Nicholson north to Mansfield to take charge of the hunt. The whole state was in shock, and locally the Mansfield community was devastated by the deaths. While Mansfield was in mourning, with the shops closed and the local men readying for another search for Kennedy, Isaiah Wild Wright, drinking with his mute brother in the local pub, was heard to say he was proposing to go out and join the Kellys. So this was highly provocative and deeply offensive to all the upstanding Mansfield community members. The Mansfield area did not seem to have the numbers of Kelly sympathisers found over the ranges, so in this place, Wilde's mouthing off was crudely obnoxious. McIntyre records that when Putrus was recruiting volunteers for the return search party the following day, Wilde had even threatened some of the volunteers, should they aid the police against the Kellys, and so Putrus directed McIntyre to arrest him. McIntyre writes, quote, I went across the street to where he was gesticulating and talking very loudly. Being in no humour for a rough and tumble with a powerful man, I drew my revolver and I said to him, I have come to arrest you. I have seen my mates shot and if you don't walk quietly over to the lockup, I will shoot you. Unquote. He claims Wilde turned pale, offering up his hands for cuffing and he walked quietly over to the lockup. He had mouthed off once too often, and this talk was not to be borne in grieving Mansfield. Keneally states that while Wilde was in the lockup, Sadlier interviewed him, and it was Sadlier that offered Wilde thirty pounds if he could find Kennedy. McIntyre records that Wilde then undertook to find out where Kennedy was, if living, or his body if dead, stipulating if he were successful in his endeavour he would hand over that £30 reward to Mrs Skillion, that is, Maggie Kelly, who was now in poor circumstances with all the menfolk locked up or on the run. As soon as Nicholson arrived in Mansfield from Melbourne, he sent men back into the Stringybark Creek area for a more thorough search. Kennedy's body was not found until Thursday morning, five days after the shooting, laying where it had fallen, covered with his cloak. I think the circumstances of Kennedy's death are the most difficult to determine, as McIntyre had by then seized Kennedy's abandoned horse and dashed off at speed, leaving no witness there but Kelly. Kelly admitted to chasing Kennedy and exchanging shots, and then finally firing point-blank into his chest to, quote, put him out of his distress, unquote. But Kelly claimed Kennedy was already fatally injured by a previous shot by then, the one that had caused blood to run down his arm to his hand making Kelly think he was still pointing a gun at him, and which was giving him the breathing difficulty as he dropped to the ground. 
But of course Kelly was no doctor. Now I'm going to read more of the material from McIntyre's memoir, but I'll just warn, there are some moderately graphic descriptions of injuries that the poor police sustained in these reports. Though they're not really as shocking as anything we might see on a TV police show these days, I just thought I'd mention it. So McIntyre recounts the following. The body of Kennedy was found about a mile northeast of the camp by one of the volunteers named Henry Sparrow, the overseer from the Mount Battery station. The body was face upwards and Kennedy's cloak thrown over it. It presented a frightful spectacle. He had been shot through the side of the head, the bullet coming out in front carrying away part of his face. Uh, note that he puts the following correction here in brackets. He says, this was a mistake as it was due to decomposition and closes the brackets. And continuing he says, I believe there are several shots through the body. He goes on to record, as the body had not been recovered until the fifth day after death, and these were five days of sultry weather, decomposition had destroyed the features, and one of the ears being missing, it was first thought that it had been cut off, but afterwards believed that its absence was due to decay. And again, by the way, when McIntyre says sultry, does he mean raining again? I see, I would expect sultry's meaning to be muggy or humid, but other reports indicate that it rained heavily for days and days in those ranges. So that's not entirely clear to me anyway. So continuing on, Dr Reynolds, who undertook the coroner's inquest at Mansfield Hospital on Kennedy's body, stated, There is a large wound in the centre of the sternum, which I believe was caused by a charge of shot fired at very short range and which passed completely through the body. He had also received other wounds, one being in the right arm and one in the body under the arm. McIntyre also recorded Dr Reynolds' coronial report on the other two bodies. Quote, I have examined the body of a man that I'm told was Lonigan. I have found wounds on the left arm which I have no doubt were caused by bullets, one wound on the outside of the left thigh, one on the right temple, and one on the inner side of the right eyeball. The bullet which entered by the side of the eyeball passed through the bone of the orbit and drove portions of it into the brain. Death must have been almost instantaneous from injuries to the brain. I have also examined the body of Michael Scanlon and found external wounds apparently caused by the penetration of bullets, one on the right hip, one on the top edge of the sternum, one on the right shoulder and one on the right side." Unquote. So there did seem to be bullets flying everywhere and more shot wounds than one might expect from the way that the confrontation was described earlier. It's possible only Dan and Ned had guns initially, though they would have gathered up Lonigan and McIntyre's weapons and would have all been well armed for the arrival of Scanlon and Kennedy. The other thing to note is that unlike the other bodies, Kennedy showed quite a bit of post-mortem damage and there were rumours and graphic reports in the newspapers that the Kellys had tortured and mutilated him, inflicting, quote, senseless violation after his death. This was extrapolated hearsay responses to reports of the missing ear and the facial damage, no doubt. These reports must have been highly distressing for the family and friends to hear, and it was shocking for the general public. But we can see that after five days out in the open, both McIntyre and the doctor indicated the injuries that looked like mutilation were in fact the result of natural decay, 
and possible animal interference after death. But all of the details, published true and false, appalled and inflamed the public and it turned opinion against the Kelly Gang. The public was both horrified and terrified. News of the Stringybuck Creek encounter spread fear throughout the area and it caused travel and commerce to halt for a time and remain reduced for quite some time afterwards. Every shadow and stranger in the distance caused anxiety like that experienced by poor old Mian. The poorly armed local police constables were scared and often reluctant to pursue the now murderous gang. Future close encounters when hunting the gang over the coming weeks were more about luck than determined pursuit. With floodwaters still causing havoc in the northeast, the police didn't really begin to piece together the gang's movements until Monday the 4th, by which time they were ensconced back in the nearby familiar hideouts of the Warby Rangers near Wangaratta. Police searches, such as they were, seemed chaotic and ill-planned, crisscrossing areas and actually obliterating any clues that might have been found on the landscape. Sadlier and others were convinced that the Kellys would already have been over the border into New South Wales anyway though we know they weren't able to cross the flooded rivers. Though historically, the earlier criminal activity of the Kellys and others in the northeast had been reported in the Melbourne papers from time to time and had drawn attention outside their local area, where they had for years been regularly reported in the local press as thieves and ruffians, after Stringybark Creek, the Kelly gang were, quote, subject to a vehement outpouring of public rage and hatred, unquote right across the colony. This was the first time in 10 years a Victorian police officer was shot on active duty and it was the first multiple police deaths since British occupation of Victoria in the 1830s. Truly shocking and such an awful loss of life. It was terribly sad for everyone involved. Sergeant Kennedy was an Irish-born Irish Catholic and he served in the Dublin police before emigrating and joining the Victoria Police at 22 years old. He had a good police record and he was described as a first-rate constable. Aged 26 he married Mary Bridget Tobin and they had six children, the last being less than one year old when he died. Naturally Bridget was devastated at his loss and she never remarried. Such was the local respect for Kennedy that the government honoured the family by allowing Bridget and the children to continue to live in the house adjoining the police station for the rest of her days, and she lived into her 70s. Kennedy was buried at Mansfield Cemetery on November the 1st. With more than 200 local attendees at the funeral, the township of Mansfield was overwhelmed in their grief. Talk of memorials was already being discussed. His very elegant headstone is easily found now at the Mansfield Cemetery and Bridget was later buried next to him in 1924. Michael Scanlon was a similar age to Kennedy and also a Roman Catholic Irishman, migrating to Australia aged 21. His police record has a couple of smudges, mostly for drunkenness, but also some commendations. Though a good bushman and a good shot, he did have concerns about hunting the Kellys. Apparently he told a friend he could have his dog if it did not return, so there was certainly some anxiety there. Scanlon's funeral was held before Kennedy's, of course, on October 29th, with a large local contingent of mourners also in attendance. 
though he had no immediate family in the country there to mourn for him, and he was also buried at the Mansfield Cemetery. Thomas Lonigan, who we've heard about before in earlier episodes, was younger than the other two, but again, he was an Irish-born Roman Catholic, though unusually for the time, he later converted to become a Protestant, and so he was buried away from the other two in the Mansfield Cemetery in the C of E section, also on the October 29th. Migrating to Victoria in 1867, he farmed before joining the police force, just seven years before his death. His police record, as we know from earlier, was more troubling than the others, with citations for drunkenness, which did seem fairly standard in the police force at the time, I must say, but also for assault, and once for, quote, playing cards in a public house in his uniform, unquote. So that's outrageous. And of Kennedy's group, he was the only one with a previous personal history with Kelly. Lonigan was also married to Maria Siggins, before they left Ireland, actually, and they had four children, the youngest only two in 1878 when he lost his life. These men had fallen in the pursuit of their profession, undertaking these tasks on behalf of the government and the people of Victoria. They were gunned down for undertaking that sworn duty to the police force, and the Mansfield community were very keen to ensure that their fallen heroes were recognised for bravely undertaking their duty and that their loss was well commemorated. In the weeks that followed, there was some suggestion that they should all be buried together under a suitable memorial at the cemetery. But there were objections owing to their religious differences. In a time when Roman Catholic and Protestants felt the need to segregate people even in death, and there were some who simply did not want the bodies moved again. So the community began fundraising for a suitable public memorial in town, with the government also contributing, ensuring that a massive and spectacular structure was built right in the heart of Mansfield. It remains today at the centre of a large roundabout in the main street, as imposing and impressive as ever. So this confrontation led to a devastating and lamentable loss of life. Three young men in the prime of their lives cut down in the pursuit of their work, work sanctioned on behalf of the Victorian public by the Victorian government. Even those who may be sympathetic to the Kellys and their hounded situation must at least admit the great grief and personal loss that this conflict had brought to the men involved and to their completely blameless families, especially those little children. Causes and motivations aside, it's a very sorry outcome. And this was not to be the end of loss and grief in this Kelly saga either. Premier Berry and Police Commissioner Standish soon increased the rewards. £1,000 on Ned Kelly's head and £500 for the others. A massive amount for the day. And they introduced a bill to outlaw the gang. This Felons Apprehension Act meant the gang could now be legally pursued by anyone and brought in dead or alive. This was a very severe action, so Chief Justice Stowell allowed the gang a grace period to surrender themselves by November 12 at Mansfield before the act to outlaw them came into force. According to the author Carroll, they were listed as Ned and Dan Kelly, Charles Brown and William King. I'm not sure where those other names come from, but it's certainly a disturbing note 
that this act was about to be invoked while two members of the gang were still officially identified, or worse actually, if Carol's right they were misidentified. It's certainly not a good time to be Charles Brown or William King, whoever they were. The act stated that if any, quote, outlaw shall be found at large, armed or there being reasonable ground to believe that he is armed, it shall be lawful for any of Her Majesty's subjects, whether a constable or not, and whether its use be preceded by a demand for surrender or not, to apprehend or take such outlaw dead or alive, unquote. This really is the most amazing piece of legislation for a country with a legal system predicated on proof for conviction. Basically, they are saying any person can kill a suspected gang member without any warning or request to surrender with no legal ramifications. This rule was in place before two of the gang members were even identified. Really, it's surprising that every man and his dog didn't take the opportunity to shoot any object of some long outstanding feud. On the pretext, they thought they were a Kelly gang member. The Age newspaper explained that the act meant the offences for which they were outlawed amounted to finding of guilt by legislature, removing any rights they previously enjoyed, such as right to an ordinary criminal trial. Special provision in the Act was also made to waive the normal legal safeguards, enabling the authorities to break into private homes if they believed the fugitives were in the vicinity, or to arrest persons believed to have assisted them. When a government and its people are fearful, they seem to be willing to give up substantial freedoms from potential authoritarian overreach. Perhaps maybe some interesting parallels with the modern-day anti-terror legislation. The Kelly gang were the terrorists of their time, though for the most part their activities seemed aimed at the authorities and not the general public so far. Unless, of course, you were a wealthy squatter and a Kelly neighbour, or a Chinese merchant asking for a drink, but it was all very disturbing on many levels. Along with the impact on the gang, the Felons Apprehension Act also meant, quote, any person harbouring, concealing or assisting the gang, giving them information or withholding information from the police, could receive up to 15 years imprisonment with or without hard labour, unquote. So one assumes though that some proof or testing in court may have been required before that would occur. On November the 4th, the outlaw posters were published all over Victoria, calling on Ned Kelly, Dan Kelly and two unknown accomplices to surrender to Mansfield Police Station by November 12 or become outlawed. With the now enormous sums of £1,000 for Ned and £500 for each of the other three, the government must have thought they would have capture of the gang wrapped up one way or another in no time. And by the way, I have put a copy of that reward notice on the website. Meanwhile, in the northeast, the poor police were panic-stricken. They were half-heartedly combing the local area, but making no progress in locating the Kellys. They sometimes actually found the gang's tracks. Indeed, some of the searchers got very close while the gang was trying to cross the Murray River into New South Wales. But the reluctance of the police to actively pursue them became clear even to the Kellys, who on that occasion at least were close enough to watch them dithering. The police ineptitude bolstered Ned's confidence once again and may have had something to do with him 
deciding to return to the Warby Rangers. The police were proving to be a danger to the public and to themselves, firing on each other in their trepidation. Maloney says one officer, Superintendent Brooke Smith, even posted men outside his door to prevent the outlaws from snatching him from his bed. Sadlier advised Standish to get the Crown Lands Department to, quote, put pressure on the few selectors near Greta and the Wombat who notoriously harbour the Kellys, unquote, threatening their hold on their selections, and they leaned heavily on their local informants. A drunken bark stripper at Beechworth Hotel, and we're assuming that means he's stripping bark off trees and, hmm, yeah, we won't go there. But uh, he boasted that he'd seen the Kelly gang at the Sherrits' homestead three days earlier. Standish heard the report and he sent Sadlier to follow up. And so they decided on raiding Sherrits' house and those of other sympathisers in the Woolshed Valley. Chief Commissioner Standish thought to lead the raids himself on this occasion and to take the glory. So he travelled with Nicholson to Beechworth in a special train arriving about 3am. Accompanied by nine constables, an Aboriginal tracker, possibly Tommy Spider from Queensland, who (laughs) no doubt would be completely useless should the Kelly gang remove their shoes, and two reporters joined by local police and volunteers, totalling 32 in all. So what came to be known as the Great Sebastopol Raid was underway. The group rode out to the house of Sherritt's father at Sheep Station Creek, surrounding it, bursting in, but finding nothing. They then powered on through the woodshed valley to the house of Joe Byrne's mother. They had no luck finding the Kellys there either. But during this raid, the police did make contact with Aaron Sherritt, and he unwittingly named Joe Byrne as a gang member. Until then, only the Kellys were known. Steve Hart would not be identified for close to another month. As usual, the relevant local sympathisers already knew of the impending police raid, so the grapevine continued to work for the Kellys, even after the shootings. And it was not of concern to them directly, as they were by then five days gone from the area. With many homes in the valley raided, but no hint of the gang members being found, The plan descended into farce, being written up by the journalists as Standish storming up and down the valley and simply making a fool of himself. The whole affair was much derided and lampooned in the Melbourne press. Though Standish returned to Melbourne empty-handed, the police had gained information about Joe Byrne and there was the possibility that the police might find an ongoing valuable local agent in Aaron Sherritt they suggested to him he could save his friend Joe by informing on the gang so that they could be brought in with Joe unharmed. Standish assured him this could be arranged, believing that Aaron's childhood affection for Joe would encourage cooperation if he could be spared. Nicholson was less impressed with the deal, and he told Standish so, but a relationship of sorts was formed with Sherrod. This is another element of the story that's difficult to discern. After discreetly helping the gang hide out in the nearby caves straight after the Stringybark Creek shootings, did Aaron actually now believe he might save Joe by informing on the gang? Was he interested in the money that the police would throw at him for this assistance? 
Some suggest Aaron was agreeing he might cooperate with the police only to act as a kind of a double agent for the Kellys, and that he had no intention of actually assisting the police with anything useful, but rather directing the police away from the gang. If this started out as his intention, tragically, his behaviour led to mistrust within the sympathiser community, and later suspicion from the gang. With the November 12 deadline passing and no Kellys presenting themselves to the Mansfield Police Station, that status of outlaw came into force. Now anyone could legally gun them down with no word of warning. Though the police watched and followed Maggie Kelly constantly in the following weeks and months, she was able to slip through their lines to regularly provision the gang. Standish had even planted his own spy as a boarder under Maggie's roof, but he proved useless. That the local people seemed so prepared to offer help to the Kellys rankled in the extreme, and Standish advised Nicholson not to hesitate to take all opportunities to lock up the Quinns, the Lloyds and their other associates. Many of them were locked up time and time again, for long periods, and then released without any charge. This was seriously affecting the families, and their ability to farm and make a living and it simply served to harden their resolve to continue supporting the gang and to outwit the authorities. If the police insisted on making it hard for his friends, Ned saw it was becoming necessary to devise other ways of rewarding them for their favours. The gang would now need large sums of money to recompense their loyal supporters and to survive under the radar. So perhaps a bank robbery would be just the ticket. So we'll finish episode 10 here today. The boys were now bonded as the Kelly gang by this terrible encounter with the police and they were all now marked as outlaws. They needed to make plans for their future and to consider how they might proceed. In the following episode, before we touch on the gang's next move, we might look briefly at the backgrounds of some of the other people considered pseudo-gang members and of those most clearly associated with them, such as Tom Lloyd and Aaron Sherritt. There must certainly have been some very strong bonds amongst their friends and extended families for the boys to have assumed that they would be supported and able to stay safely in the area given they were now outlawed police murderers with massive rewards on their heads. The local ill feeling towards the police was extreme and was apparently not softened by the tragic police deaths. Indeed, the animosity in the region was about to become worse with the increase in harassment which was to accompany the renewed police pursuit of anyone with the slightest connection to the Kellys. So, I look forward to exploring these developments with you in a fortnight. Remember to check the reading list and the other additional material that I've popped up on the Australian Histories Podcast website. That's at www.australianhistoriespodcast.com.au Remember the histories is spelt I-E-S. Contact details can be found there also. And I do thank those of you who found the time to rate, like and share the podcast with others. That was really helpful. More people are finding the podcast and it's so rewarding to think that others are enjoying the stories now too. Take care then and enjoy discovering these great stories that are around you. I'll talk with you again in two weeks. Cheers. Cheers.